You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, hello, strong, feisty women. So there have been a few times when I've been out of a race or a gravel cycling event, and a woman has come up to me and thanked me for the show, and then quietly pulled me aside and asked if I wouldn't mind doing a show on pelvic organ prolapse. Sometimes I get some details, sometimes I don't, but it's happened a number of times. And I'll be honest, this is a topic that I was not terribly well-versed in. But as I started researching it, it became clear that this is something that probably affects a lot of you. And even if it doesn't, it's something that we should all be aware of as active menopausal women. And it's definitely not something we need to be ashamed of or talk about in hushed whispers. This show is all about bringing all of these issues out into the daylight and normalizing them. So I called up a urogynecologist at the University of Colorado, Dr. Kathleen Connell, to come on and do a deep dive on pelvic organ prolapse, as well as pelvic health in general, including how to keep our vaginas and our vulvas healthy and free from irritation, infection, pain, and all the issues that can arise as estrogen declines. Kathleen is Chief of Urogynecology and Reconstructive Pelvic Surgery at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She is also the co-director of a multidisciplinary practice called Women's Pelvic Health and Surgery. Her surgical practice focuses on pelvic floor disorders, including pelvic organ prolapse, urinary and fecal incontinence, and reconstructive pelvic surgery. She has also conducted some studies on cyclists, bike saddle selection, and genital health that I think you'll find very interesting. We get into all that on the show as well, and as I promise in the episode, I'll put a link to that research in the show notes too. This is one of those episodes where I personally learned a ton. So I hope you get as much out of it and enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get to it, you can find us as always at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. You can come on over and join that private, ever-growing Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group and take part in all of our conversations there. If you like the show, please subscribe and share it on your socials and with your friends. It helps others to find us. And thank you as always for all the hearts and the stars and the great reviews. I really, really appreciate it. And don't forget, we have our hit replay podcast guide subscription service, which is particularly helpful, I think, for information dense episodes like this one. Plus it supports the show. So a big thank you to everyone who has subscribed so far, and I'll put a clickable link to that in the show notes too. Finally, I'd like to give a quick thanks to Vela Rosa for the renewed sponsorship of the show. I was just checking out their new Painted Poppies collection, and it is banging. I don't necessarily need more shorts, but I think I need those. Anyway, ladies at Vela Rosa, thank you for your continued support. Okay, enough of me. Let's hear about some of our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Okay. Well, Kathleen, I'm so glad I found you because we have so many questions about this sensitive topic and not a whole lot of answers. So thank you for being here. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I agree. I think there's a lot of um, unanswered questions for women, and we often find that they come searching for these, and they've been bounced around a lot. So um, we're really excited. I think awareness is the biggest the issue that we have at hand. So can you tell me first what a urogynecologist is and what that work entails? Because that is sort of a special uh, profession. Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's I consider it very special. <laughs> um, a urogynecologist. So I went through training for OBGYN for four years, and then I did three extra years of a subspecialty, what we call fellowship training. Um, and that was solely focused on what we call the generic term is female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. And that could be done by a urology resident or an OBGYN resident after their residency training um, to become a subspecialist to treat women with what we call pelvic floor disorders. And what they include are urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic floor dysfunction. And, uh, and then, of course, we also see a lot of menopausal issues because they're all associated with that. Right. And we'll get to a lot of that, you know, towards the back end of this conversation for sure, because we haven't really talked about any of those prolapse issues on the show. And, you know, women have come up to me and whispered that they wish that that we would, because it's still something that people aren't talking a whole lot about. Yes. Especially with your audience with high activity levels. Um, we see a lot of patients out here in Colorado, and um, I think it's it's excellent to be active, but I think it's how we exercise and how we can use our body mechanics. Okay. Excellent. Well, stay tuned for that one. I want to like circle back and, and go back to the basics a little bit. So let's talk about the vulvar and vaginal changes that happen during menopause. You know, in past shows, we've discussed elements of, and I have actually never said this word out loud. So I don't know if I'm going to say it right. Genitourinary? Genitourinary. Uh-huh. <laughs> Syndrome of menopause or GSM, which is easier to say, which thankfully is a better term than vaginal atrophy, as it was previously called. Um, yes. You know, we know there's the thinning and the drying as estrogen declines. And that's of the vaginal walls. But then I wonder, like, what's happening to the outer structures? Like what's happening to the vulva and the urethra and all like all of that? They are all related and you're correct. The, so we see the thinning and the drying, not only of the vaginal mucosa, but also along the urethra and particularly by the opening of the vagina where the urethra and like the hymenal ring are and of the labia. So when we see severe thinning or atrophy, um, sometimes we even see the smaller labia, what we call the labia minora, almost fused to the skin, to the larger labia, <clears throat> excuse me. So, uh, yeah, so those changes happen because of the slow decline of estrogen over time, you know, that occur with like perimenopause and then into menopause. So that, so then let's talk a little bit about the ramifications of that before we talk about the treatment. Like if that, if that goes I mean, when you're talking and I had not, if people could see my face, they would have saw that, that I found that a little alarming. <laughs> like, I didn't know that that could happen. Um, you know, it, if that goes un, untreated, like that sounds like I could get on my bicycle seat and really do some damage to my tissues. It can cause a lot of irritation. It, that is true. I mean, irritation on a bike with lots of pressure can cause any woman um, irritation by the urethra and by the labia. Um, but particularly for um, those with menopausal changes. So uh, when the tissues get drier, some people note 
like vaginal dryness or discomfort during intercourse. But a lot of women um, may or may not be sexually active, but also have irritation, even just with exercise or even walking around where the tissues can be very sensitive and dry. So the biggest ramifications are, are dryness and irritation. And when we talk about um, treatments for that, you know, there are a lot of suppositories and pills and creams. I like a lot of the creams and we can get into that um, because you can also treat the outside. And that's really important too, because the skin changes as well. Just like when you see, I'd say like little nine-year-old ladies with the very thin skin on their arms and hands, those same changes happen internally as well. And the urethra is just as sensitive. And when they, those tissues get irritated or dry, people can have more frequency and urgency. And sometimes just giving them vaginal estrogen treatment helps them with that when it's mild. I mean, if they have true overactive bladder and incontinence, it may or may not help that. But often when they just have more frequency and irritation, it certainly helps that. So is vaginal estrogen like gold standard for that? Like what, it, what, what is the best treatment? Yes. So the gold standard is vaginal estrogen and, and it, it does a couple of things. So the reason why I think you probably hear most doctors going to that versus like the laser or other, like, more, uh, like androgen creams is that it, it does several things. It, it promotes vasodilation. And that's important because the vagina, actually the lubrication in the vagina is what we call a transudate. So there's just small capillaries. There's no glands with like ducts. And so it's just moisture that seeps through the capillaries. So um, vaginal estrogen helps promote vasodilation. It helps keep the lactobacilli. So what's also very important is what we call the microbiome. And you hear a lot about that with like bacterial balance. And there's more and more studies now looking at the microbiome of the bowel and the gut and the bladder um, and the vagina. And it keeps the lactobacilli, which are the benign, quote unquote, healthy, you know, normal bacteria that predominate in younger women, but with menopause, the pH changes, it becomes more basic. And then the lactobacilli with the lack of estrogen can die off. And then things like E. coli and other bacteria can then, you know, overproduce and cause either bacterial vaginosis, atrophic vaginitis, or even recurrent UTIs, a treatment for recurrent UTI in menopausal women the one thing in randomized controlled trials that works is actually estrogen treatment. So that's why it's so, um, why it's so good in the gold standard compared to some other treatments. Interesting. That is, that's interesting. And does it matter? You sort of alluded to that before. Like I personally have a ring, you know, but like, I know that there's other applications. What is the, what are the differences, I guess, between the applications? Sure. So there's, there's different forms. So there's a cream that you can use and some people don't like it because they say it can be messy. I always tell patients, you know, they can choose other things and we always go through that, but I think it's how much, so you don't need a lot to get, you know, the best bang for your buck. Um, it, the, the key is really, I'd rather see patients use very tiny amounts, like a pea size three times a week than putting in half an applicator or a full applicator. You know, that's when you start to absorb that estrogen into the circulation and then can stimulate other things. So it's more, we want local targeted treatment. Uh, what's nice about the ring is, and the, there's also a tablet called Vagifem or Uvafem. Um, what's nice about those are you can't overdo it, right? You put the ring. What's nice about the ring is it's continuous. It's three months. And that actually works really well. 
Um, and, and that's easy, especially for um, probably not your patient population, but older ladies who may not have dexterity in their hands, you know, that they can't do that a couple times a week. Um, and then the pill is also nice. The tablet, uh, we joke around, we call it the baby aspirin for the vagina because <laughs> you know, people get it. They're like, do I eat it? I'm like, no, no, you know, it's in the vagina. So, cause it looks like a baby aspirin It's very tiny. Um, and that goes in personally, I, I like for my patients, the, the ring and the, and the cream, if patients use the, the ring or the tablet in the vagina, and they still have external symptoms. Then I also give them the cream and I tell them just use a tiny amount, like a pea size by the urethra inside the labia where they would wipe. Because the, the only downside of let's say the ring is just, it won't reach those external tissues, um, but it works excellent for the vagina. So it's a great, it's a great option. And what is nice is if patients have breast cancer, um, oncologists like the release of the ring or the tablet, cause they can't, they can't overdo it where the cream, sometimes we don't know what people are using. Right. Right. And I, because sometimes I'm on my bike for 10 or 12 hours or days, like I, I actually sometimes will double up with reverie, you know, which is one of yeah. those, um, another word that I'm, thank you. You can say yeah. it. <laughs> the hyaluronic acid. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And what, how that, does that work by drawing moisture to the tissues? Like what is the effect there? It does. It does. It's an excellent moisturizer. So, um, and that's great to use and probably particularly for this population on the podcast, like a very active population, particularly if they're cyclists, um, to use that in between because, you know, estrogen in small doses <laughs> works well. Um, you know, we have to be mindful of how much, you know, we can't drown in it. I would love to. <laughs> right? have everybody use a ton, but we have to, we are mindful. So externally, internally in the vagina in small doses, it's great. But you know, if too much, you know, unopposed estrogen can cause stimulation of the uterus and lead to cancer or breast cancer. Um, so what's nice about the reverie or the hyaluronic acid formulations are they're non-hormonal. So that's great to use when you're on the bike for long periods of time to keep it lubricated, um, on the off days, you know, usually we have people, if they're doing like the external cream or, or cream inside, that's like three times a week at bedtime, the ring obviously does its own job and, and the tablet is, uh, twice a week. So on those off days, they can use the, um, moisturizer. If you're using the ring, you probably just need the hyaluronic acid externally. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I have found. And what is, what is DHEA? Like I've heard some people reference that. So DHEA is a, is a androgen hormone, um, that the ovaries do produce to some extent and, and our adrenal glands. Um, people have used that for vaginal, um, moisturizing and to help, it does help, uh, what we call mature. So with the changes that occur in the vagina, part of that drying process is that those cells kind of deflate and get thin and get drier. Um, so it can help with that as well. I'd say the problem with that is we just don't have enough study. There've been some small studies, but not well randomized and placebo controlled, like the, the gold standard for really getting good results. And then the question becomes to any, you'll, you'll probably see a lot of gynecologists and doctors don't always like giving androgens because if you do absorb, you can have the potential to start getting like hair on the chin or you know things like that, like androgen type effects, like male. Right, on, 
clitoral changes? I mean, with that, I know testosterone can cause some of those. Yes, it can. It can. They're, they're all like sort of in the same class. So, um, so I think, uh, we have less testosterone was studied for a lot with like the patches, like transdermal patches and orals probably about 10 to 20 years ago, um, for sexual function for like desire, but the studies that showed where it helped people had mega doses and had really high, way higher levels in their bloodstream than what would normally be produced. Um, and that's why you don't really see that as a treatment because then the risk profile of it affects, you know, men do worse with us for heart attacks, you know, compared to premenopausal women. But when we, when our estrogen levels decline in menopause, we kind of catch up to them. So estrogen is sort of protective. So that's why we don't treat a whole lot with a lot of like androgens in general. I I don't think using small amounts of DHA is probably going to hurt somebody, but I think for the true benefits, um, there's no doubt that estrogen helps in what it does and it's well studied. And I even have some colleagues who are looking at the immune system. There's a ton of immune cells in the vagina and in the urethra. And in terms of like recurrent urinary tract infections, you know, what is the mechanism? And, you know, we have receptors, not only along the tissues in the urethra of the lining and the lining of the vagina, but in the cells themselves inside the nucleus. So, you know, hormones are really interesting um, things that can really, really have a lot of mechanisms. So, um, so right now I'd say based on all the research that we have, that's why you see mostly estrogen treatments and then the non-hormonal um, treatments. Um, hyaluronic acid is great. I have some patients who use coconut oil, you know, they want to be totally natural, a lot of coconut oils and a lot of like cosmetic products. I think it's a little more oily, um, but some people prefer to use vitamin E, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. There's whole songs devoted to coconut oil. So. <laughs> Yes, I believe it. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> they will have it for the entry to the show. Anyway, um, before we before we leave this, I am kind of curious. You had you had alluded to the lasers, and you know people do ask about the Mona Lisa touch and some of the laser treatments. Mm-hmm. And I had sort of shared with you a recent study that I'm sure you saw. Um, yeah, it was like mm, you know maybe they're not. They're not as effective. And then there were some counterpoints that got published that said, yes, they are. The study just wasn't conducted properly. I'm just curious what your thoughts on the laser treatments are. Sure. So I'll, I'll put it out there that I'm, I'm probably more conservative. So I'm, I'm a surgeon, I'm a, I'm a clinician, I see patients, but I also have a, a basic science laboratory and I actually study tissues, um, mostly of like the ligaments that support uh, the structures, but I do a lot of um, research looking at the cells and the estrogen receptors. And um, so what I really um, appreciated in that study was that it didn't change, the the laser didn't change the cells much. And estrogen, and not that I'm like a, ooh, you know, estrogen's the the greatest thing since sliced bread, because as I mentioned, we have to be careful with that too. Everything has risks and benefits and that's what we balance. But estrogen um, in research too has shown to, so we have the vaginal epithelial layer, which is the mucosal layer. Right under that, we have a connective tissue and smooth muscle layer called the fascia. Um, And estrogen actually penetrates into that deeper layer too. So in women undergoing surgery, we know who you can almost tell just when we're doing our dissections on that tissue, 
that it's thin, it's really thin and really tears really easily. It's harder to sew together um, when people have low estrogen or not using estrogen cream. And in, we try to prime the tissue before surgery to get that thicker. And so studies have shown that it actually helps that layer too. So as a scientist, I was looking, I was very interested in that study because that was one of the first ones that I'm like, well, what is it doing to the tissue at a cellular level, right? Not just symptoms because you can have biases, um, you know, placebo effects, all those things on either side. Um, and I think for me, it just, there's two things in, in all these studies and it's very hard to fund and I'm hoping we get more, but, you know, six months is not a lot of time. So if you're going to go under a risk of potential burns, which some studies have shown, um, is it worth the risk when you have hyaluronic acid, estrogen creams, even DHEA, versus doing this study, you know, doing this treatment, I mean, of potentially taking a risk of a laser. Um, that's just really superficially, it is replacing the upper layer. But my question is, what is it doing to those small capillaries? That's where the moisture comes from, right? What is it doing to the deeper tissues? And is it really a long-term, is it something that people are going to need to keep repeating? And quite honestly, it's not covered by insurance. So people are paying thousands of dollars to do this and there's really not necessarily a benefit. So there is this expression in medicine, like just because you can, doesn't always mean you should, right? So my question is, you know, if this were in the male world, <laughs> And they said, would you like to laser your genital area with <laughs> a cream? I can guarantee you this would not be a topic. And even furthermore, why I'm a little more hesitant is we've seen so many disasters with women's health. I think um, there's a lot more like with the transvaginal meshes. And, you know, I think there's things that really need to be closely studied before we just start adopting that, you know. So, so like I said, I'm biased as a academic physician. I want to see the data. I want to see the tissue. You know, I look at, I would love, unfortunately that paper doesn't show the slides, but I would love to see what does that tissue look like? What do those cells look like? What is it doing? And then I would love and hope they do a follow-up study at one year, because maybe those effects, you could go through all that treatment. And then if the effects don't last, because you're still going to have low estrogen levels. And if you're not treating with a cream, does it help? Maybe they need to do laser and a cream. I, I don't really know, but I don't think just doing a one, one time treatment with a laser is going to help somebody more than at least temporarily at best. Yeah. Yeah. I, that makes a whole lot of sense. And I think that, you know, some of what I had been reading was that it encourages some of that capillary development because it's doing that. It's bringing blood flow to the surface because you're burning it, but you know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And cause we've shown actually uh, my partner, Dr. Guess, and I worked with uh, Dr. Arnold Melman and he was the chair of urology at the time when we were doing our subspecialty training and he did a lot with sexual medicine. And we were showing that there's a study that if you just stimulate the area with a vibrator that you can get increased sensation. So there are other ways I think of increasing blood flow and, you know, they say use it or lose it. Right. So sexual activity is really important and we can see differences in women who may be widowed or not sexually active versus those that have regular intercourse. So I think there's better ways personally, probably more fun ways than lasering the vagina. But that sounds so much better. 
<laughs> that's my personal take on it. But I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm hoping there are some big groups um, looking at these things. But I will say JAMA is a, a rigorous journal. So to get published in that, they do have rigorous data. And so um, so I, I, I thought it was fairly well run. But I, I think anytime you deal with um, women's health and estrogen, people get very riled up. And I think you can see a lot of bias <laughs> sometimes. So I think what I always tell patients is we look for those most rigorously held trials like randomized groups and placebos as the control to really kind of reduce bias as best you can. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. So talking about uh, Dr. Guest, your your partner. Like, I wanted this uh, to talk a little bit about the work that you had both done. It, it's a bit few years ago at this point, but um, you know, you had look. I covered it for bicycling, and you you had done some work specifically on forty eight cyclists and twenty two runners, looking at um, the genital region of both groups. And maybe not surprisingly, you know, you found that there was uh, 
some tingling and numbness and you know the site most of the cyclists had some changes there right although it didn't seem to affect their sexual function correct um similarly you know you you looked at saddles i'm wondering like all these years later and i'll put the the links to these studies in the show notes for everybody like what is the take-home message at this point in your mind about cycling and women's genital health Sure. I think first off, cycling is great. I think it's really important to be active. And I do think it helps maintain every activity, physical activity maintains our overall health um, and pelvic health. Um, So I think it's a good thing. We actually got into that study from the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health because there was studies done on male police officers in Long Beach, California that were having genital issues. And then it became an occupational safety hazard. And for two years, we tried to recruit female police officers who rode bicycles, but there just wasn't enough. So then uh, the read, so how our population, how we got our population, we were in New York City at the time, we went to Central Park, because even the police officers there rode horses and bicycles, so not, I mean, uh, motorcycles, not bicycles. So so our, our group was a healthy group. And I think that's also important to note. So, so we definitely had a, it, it, it would be great for this show, right? Because these, these are probably your, your group that's listening. So the good news is it was a younger, healthier population. Um, and like you said, no surprise, we found some changes. What we were looking at was um, one of the most sensitive things that we found was that uh, vibration was the most reliable. So we had a probe and when you touch the skin and we did areas by the clitoris, the labia, the perineal body, um, when you touch the skin and then the machine will slowly turn on like increasing vibration, patients would click a mouse and say, okay, I can feel that. So their sensation was, was very good overall. They did have some numbness and, and some um, alterations. We, we used healthy runners as our controls because we wanted a similar active population. Um, but I, I was happy and not surprised to see that the sexual function was not affected. And I think what it comes down to is just how do we, how do we exercise safely? Right. Like, I think it's more of how we do it. Just like there's certain ways of lifting there's certain ways of, you know, whatever, all sports have safety measures. And I think it's uh, what they recommended for the police officers were to take breaks. So I think where you feel the pressure, right. So not to just be sitting in one spot at all the time, especially when you're down low, we found that like the same, the handlebar height also mattered that put more pressure towards the clitoris in the front, like more sensitive areas. And probably for menopausal women, I would say more rubbing by the urethra where people can have more uh, discomfort. So maybe getting up and standing and, and riding, or sometimes sitting a little bit further back, if you can spread that pressure towards what we call the seat bones, like the ischial tuberosities are those bones that we sit on to be a little bit further off by the urethra, um, would be helpful just to give those tissues a break. I, I don't think it's harmful for people to cycle. Um, how we do the seat designs, you know, that that became a question too. So of course the, the NIOSH people from occupational safety and health were promoting a no-no seat. It almost looks like just a kidney bean. And that <laughs> you're shaking your head, right? That's really hard. I think I'm not a professional cycle a cyclist, you know, now that I'm in Colorado, I've been riding more, but um, you know, it's my understanding from those who are serious avid riders, and you can probably speak to this, probably need that to guide the bike and, and, and do that. So you can probably speak 
to that. Yeah, it, it's that's not an option. And and but I found out quickly. <laughs> I wrote about that at the time. And you know, it's we have a lot in our audience who are going to uh Iron Man this weekend, you know. So it's when you're when you're in that aero position for 112 miles, like there's not much moving around to be done, you know. But uh since that time, saddle evolution has come a long way. Yes, you know, yeah. which is exciting to see which is exciting. And, and the cutouts are, I think a little bit for the cutouts were designed for the male anatomy. And so, and that's why I think they probably really needed to focus on the saddle design, because in our study, we found there was more pressure on the sides of the labia. The labia kind of fell in the middle there. And that seemed to be causing more pressure. Now the patients that we saw or, or subjects that we saw weren't having terrible symptoms, didn't have sexual dysfunction. But I think in terms of comfort, especially for those long Ironman rides, you know, it probably is more comfortable to have a padded seat, a wider seat, you know, just a district. I think it's more pressure distribution, but you need your aerodynamics and seat control and all whatever else you need for what you do. You need a good bike fit. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You need a good bike fit. And you know, all the years I wrote, I've been riding for bicycling for 26 years. So, I mean, it's, it's been a very long evolution and I, I worked with Dr. Andy Pruitt. I don't know if you know who yes. that is. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do. I do. And he has spent like, it's kind of his life's work developing saddles. And to that point, like they found that a lot of those cutouts were counterproductive for women because of that reason. And when I first started testing them, I was like, that's not good. Like I I'm always very comfortable, but this is making me very uncomfortable because everything's just going into that channel. But I would just like to put a bow on it for the audience listening. Now you shouldn't be uncomfortable, even in your Ironman position, you shouldn't be uncomfortable. And if you are, there are so many different saddle designs out there that have sort of a cradling shape and all kinds of stuff that can take the pressure off those tissues. You should not have pressure that is painful or makes you numb on those tissues. Yes. And I don't know, because like I said, I'm not an Ironman athlete like you, but maybe you could also speak to do padded shorts. I get questions about that. Like, and so I'm curious from you, should I be telling patients that I see that are there other things that can like, they always say, well, is there padded shorts or are they, or is there a specific cradle design? Or do you think it's more personal? I tell them get a good bike fit and go to experts yeah. And, and having, a, it's called the chamois in the shorts, having mm-hmm. a good quality chamois and they are women specific. I mean, they're designed that like there are women's shorts that have padding that is specially designed for women's anatomy can make a very big difference. And I will add that more is not better with that. Like there's a lot of women who are inclined to be like, oh, I need all the padding. And sometimes you actually end up sort of digging, pushing into that padding more, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's better just to have a really good bike fit and a really good saddle and a little bit of padding because the padding is really just there to protect your, you know, your sit bones and that, and against some of the hardness of the saddle, but it's not meant to be a pillow for your crotch. Does that make sense? Makes sense. That makes sense. Excellent. Anyway, before we leave this, this part of the conversation, I'd love to talk about a few other common things that come up in this audience, like vaginitis, labial hypertrophy, which when I stayed with a bunch of professional road cyclists one time, I was shocked how many were talking about 
how swollen their labia would get. And some of the women had actually had to have surgery. So, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts on those kind of issues are when you're talking about having pressure on the saddle for women. Sure. So vaginitis uh, with menopausal women, I'll start with, uh, seems to be definitely estrogen related. And I think that's where using lubricants can help like the hyaluronic acid and then either estrogen through any of the forms we talked about, cream, ring, tablet, um, because that will keep the balance uh, more healthy, like with the keeping the lactobacilli happy. Um, There are some, it's a little harder with premenopause because there's a little bit more a lot more reasons why they can get imbalances, but I think the key is more just avoiding uh, excess pressure, breathable underwear. And things. get out of your shorts as soon as you're done. Yes. Yes, for sure. And I would say that for anybody getting out of the yeah. shorts when you're done. Yeah. Um, for uh, the labial hypertrophy. Yeah, that is tricky. I think, you know, there are, there's no data on this, but my impression is that it could be two things. We all have different anatomy and there's different sizes of the labia, the labia menorah, um, and what's considered normal. A lot of that's come out when they started doing all the cosmetic labial surgery and, you know, making people like self-conscious and things like that. Um, so it, if the labia are slightly larger, they can rub more. So I think some women are prone to that more so than others. And some of it can be just bike fit and padding. I think the correct padding that you're mentioning before. Is, is some of that extreme swelling have anything to do with lymphatic drainage? That can. And I think that probably speaks to, I, I would think the bike fit and the padding. And um, it, like you said, if you're seeing discomfort, that means you have to change something. Um, give it a break. Maybe get your bike fit checked, the saddle maybe changed or checked, um, and then perhaps consider, you know, maybe they weren't using padding or maybe they have too much, as you mentioned. So something is wrong if they're having extreme pain. I think some numbness, if you're leaning down, um, probably can happen, but if it's pain or swelling, that means there's trauma to the tissues. And then the last one that I have had myself and I've, I've had people ask me about is, little like pea-sized hard nodules inside the labia, what causes that? Oh, those are really, really common. They're basically sebaceous cysts. So it's just like oil in the, just underneath the skin, like oil glands that can get backed up. Um, They're just, they're harder, they're benign. They're not, nothing that's serious. Um, They usually don't bother people, but they feel them. Um, And sometimes we can see increased, uh, of those like increased incidence in people who are, have a lot of pressure on the, on the labia. Um, you, you can have them removed in the office or, you know, sometimes in the OR people will say, can you take that out while you're doing my prolapse repair? It's really, it's, it's almost like a hardened pimple. Okay, great. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, 
plus even more cutting edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. So let's talk the prolapse. Let's let's go into that. Um, why does it occur? I mean, we we understand that menopause sort of raises the risk, or we're more at risk at this time. But like, what is happening there? So pelvic organ prolapse is when the tissues that support the uterus, the vagina, the bladder, the rectum, and those are the pelvic organs. So when the connective tissue, what I call the scaffolding, gets weak, and then things drop down and fall out of place. So it's a complex, like what we call multi, multifactorial condition where um, some of it's genetics. So we do see some people with a connective tissue disorder, such as like stanlos, like a collagen defect, but there's a spectrum, right? And there, there's, I'd say most connective tissue disorders are not diagnosed or we don't really fully understand them. Um, so some of it's genetics where we see people say, my mother had it, my sisters have it, my aunt, my grandmother, where it runs in the family. Um, so genetics can play a role, aging of the tissues in general, um, vaginal delivery is by and far the most common risk factor, but not everybody who has a baby gets prolapse. That's where these other factors come into play. Um, and then there's things, so those things we really can't control, right? Those are things that age you can't control and menopause, as you mentioned, like, so after we do see prolapse in younger women, but it tends to be more mild, like in earlier stages. And then it does seem to get worse after menopause. So there is an estrogen role in that as well. Um, and then the things that we can control though, are in the main thing is increased pressure 
on the pelvis. So it's any of what we call the Valsalva maneuver. So people who have chronic constipation, especially who are straining, that's a big thing we see a lot in our patients. And the reason why is they, it can go either way. They can have chronic constipation and cause weakening of tissues over time. And then you can get pockets in the vagina and then there makes it harder to empty the rectum. Then they're pushing more, making the prolapse worse, making the packet bigger, you know, it's that vicious cycle. And, and sometimes the prolapse causes, you know, the, the, the bulge and then the difficulty emptying the rectum. So constipation is something that we are very aggressive about screening about making sure people are getting the 30 grams of fiber. I tell my patients and my kids and my family, you know, take the phone challenge, you know, really see how much fiber you're really eating in a day. And you'd be amazed that we really don't meet it in the American diet. Um, and so, and you want to get adequate water because you need water and fiber so that it's formed, but soft. Right. Um, so that's something we can always do to prevent chronic coughing. Like we see um, asthmatics, chronic bronchitis. That's a lot of pressure, especially coughing. There was a study that they had a sensor in the vagina and coughing had the highest, it was short bursts, but very high peaks compared to straining on the toilet. It was like a post-op type uh study where they had a sensor in the vagina and they had them bend over and lift 20 pounds. And that wasn't much pressure. Straining was more prolonged and maybe about two thirds or half of the cough pressure. So the cough was high peaks, but like very short bursts, but very high peaks. So we try to, we are very aggressive in terms of people who have chronic asthma, smoking, it affects the tissue. So one, it causes a chronic cough, but it also has very, um, it's associated with very poor outcomes for prolapse recurrence. It's hard to treat those patients with their urinary incontinence. They have higher mesh erosions. It definitely affects the connective tissue. Um, so smoking is something that we can alter. And then repetitive heavy lifting. So a lot of studies showing recurrent prolapse after surgery, those are probably like the best studies that we have because you have a group that you can follow um, versus like people out in the general population. We don't really know, but factory workers, postal workers, um, anybody who does repetitive heavy lifting. And we do see some bodybuilders as well. So I think some of it, and to me, it makes me wonder, which we don't have a great answer. I think these are women that really, they're experts. They're, I think a lot of them are lifting properly, but it's just the sheer pressure and the repetitiveness of it can cause um, weakening of the tissues and prolapse. So, and I, I'd say for women, you know, we see a lot more now with the CrossFit um, and it's particularly for women who have had kids. So a lot of times they're like, I'm strong. I have really strong muscles. I can do, I do my kegels, but in comparison, so when we do an internal exam, we check those muscles and say, Hey, can you squeeze? And, and we, we kind of rate it it's subjective, but there are physical therapists who have like sensors and probes that can truly measure. But a lot of times people can do the kegel but it's weak or sometimes they can't do it at all. And they're just squeezing their gluteal muscles. And so the way I think about it is if, you know, they might be squeezing their abdominal muscles appropriately when they're doing a heavy lift, but if it's not balanced with a good pelvic floor muscle contraction, the Kegels, the pressure, when you do all that heavy lifting is going to go downward and put pressure on the organs and the pelvic floor muscles are really important because if they're weak and if they have injuries, people have shown in MRI studies and ultrasound studies that 
if there's a defect in the pelvic floor muscles after delivery, that's associated with prolapse too. So it's complex because not everybody who's had a baby gets prolapse. Not everybody with a muscle defect gets prolapse. Not everybody has a connective tissue disorder. So there's multiple, it's like many roads lead to Rome. It's the same kind of thing. I think that, that's the topic of my, my fo the focus of my research is looking at how do all these different factors play upon each other? Cause it's like, you know, usually it's like a hit, right? You have a delivery, you might have a weakness, then you're aging, then you get to menopause, all those things. It's like falling down a stairs, right? It's one after the other. So looking at what did these things do to the connective tissues over time and how do they compound each other and, and what's protective, right? There are some people that get older, you know, um, have had children and, and are in menopause and don't have prolapse. And those are an interesting group too, right? What, how are they protected? So that's probably the genetic component and probably to some extent, the lifestyle, um, you know, being fit, as they mentioned, is really important. Obesity is associated with prolapse. So, but not everybody who's obese gets prolapse. So it's, it's the combination and it's sort of like how all those come into play for each other. I have a number of questions here, but what is the, um, what is the percent of prolapse? Like what, like, what are we looking at as far as like how many women do get prolapse? So there's different studies. There's some studies in Europe because they're all in the nationalized healthcare that they can follow. And there was one in the Netherlands that showed up to 50% of women can have some form of prolapse. Now, not everybody feels it or knows they have it. You can have a mild prolapse where let's say the bladder is just slightly tipped and they don't feel it. So that, that's sort of like a broad number people going for with like what we call symptomatic prolapse um, is lower. It's uh, they say there's been different studies, but there was a big national study about 6% of women have symptomatic. Um, but there's also other statistics showing one in four women of any age can have at least one pelvic floor disorder. That's prolapse, incontinence, pelvic floor dysfunction. And it's one in three over age 65. So uh, so it is very common. Um, how many people actually go to surgery is probably less and how many people are actually bothered by it. So, so it's a spectrum where, you know, stage zero is, you know, perfect. I'll call it pelvic score, you know, somebody who's never had any kids and, and has zero prolapse all the way down to stage four where everything's completely out. So, so there's a wide range of presentations that we see. And it's, it's interesting because we've had over the course of the show, I've had two pelvic floor specialists on the show talking mm -hmm. about all of these issues, because we have a lot of women in our audience who do CrossFit, who do barbell lifting, who do all those kind of things. You know, we, we advocate heavy lifting often on the show because of all the benefits that it accrues to women, especially in this demographic. Um, so it's, it's, it's curious to me to hit it reinforces a lot of what other people have said in that if you think of your uh, core as a canister, you have to remember that your pelvic floor is part of that canister, right? And any, any weakness in there is going to put more pressure on the pelvic floor. And that's probably the least apt to handle all that pressure. Correct. Right. Is that a good yeah. way to look at? I, I would say that's a great analogy. I would say yeah. that's a great analogy. And then would you, would you send them to, I mean, when you're talking about somebody who like, you know, maybe they can, deadlift 250 pounds, but they can't squeeze your finger in a kegel. Um, mm -hmm. What do you send them to a pelvic floor specialist to try to act, you know, get some of that taken care of to activate, to figure out what's wrong going on there? 
Yes. Yes. We rely heavily on our pelvic floor therapists. So in our program, they're in our clinics. We work with them. We have uh, networks of all the physical therapists in the area that I think is really important because even when we do surgery for prolapse, I tell patients, it's the same thing, what you just described, you know, we can fix the scaffolding, but the muscles are just as equally as important. And if there's an imbalance, we need to address that too. And, um, I always work with the pelvic floor therapist to say, Hey, you know, they can help you with how to lift, how to modify. Right. And, and some people have other issues, you know, I mean, you have an athletic group here, so I won't go into detail, but if they have other issues, they can address that too, because things can be off kilter sometimes. And sometimes even like lifters and professionals, right. They may have, they may be favoring something. So keeping things balanced, I think is the key. Yeah, a hundred percent. One of the previous guests I had mentioned talked about that. Like sometimes it's just a hip imbalance and it's, you know, it's causing urinary incontinence. Like exactly. And people think it's crazy. They want to have a sling. And I'm like, oh, you know what, Mesh, you want PT. And I think a lot of times people don't necessarily always want to hear that they want a quick fix. And I'm like, trust me, you know, this is the most healthiest way. And you're going to feel so much better. Cause even if we try to put in a sling, if they're off kilter, it makes it worse. They get a tighter. So you can have incontinence from a lax, like a relaxed pelvic floor that doesn't kegel well, or if there's a lot of what we see in athletes, they might be really hypertonic. We see it in like soccer players and things like that. And even in young girls that if there's, if it's an imbalance where they're, they're not using um, their pelvic floor properly, or they're just activating their their front um, uh, quadriceps, they can get incontinence too. And, and it's, it's more of just getting the muscles to work together. Yeah, definitely. There should be more pelvic floor therapists around. I've, I've heard often that it's, that can be tricky to find one, but if you're in this situation, it sounds like it's a hundred percent worth. It is. And I would find somebody that is dedicated to that and does that. So as long as they say they've been trained, I mean, 20 years ago, it was really hard to find therapists, but now there's a lot more available. I'd say it has become a known specialty and has gotten a lot more common. So you definitely want somebody that is dedicated to that and, and does a lot of pelvic floor. And Pilates and yoga are also now being studied to see, I think, I still think it's good to go to a physical therapist because I call that the very personalized trainer, because if you have an imbalance, they will find it and help you. But I think the Pilates and yoga are great to maintain and keep the pelvic floor and the core strong. You are the second or third person to say that too, in the specialty. Um, One of the experts had recommended doing deep breathing in child's pose, you know, because she sounds like sometimes you just need to get the diaphragm and the pelvic floor sort of working in sync with each other again. Mm-hmm. And if you're someone who lifts heavy, that's really important too. Right? Yes. Yes. Excellent. So going to the treatment, you know, like the other last level, I mean, I guess it w- is getting an actual sling or getting surgery sort of the last stop on the station w- for treating this condition. For, uh, yeah, sling is for stress incontinence. So leaking with like coughing, laughing, sneezing it, we use that when people have failed conservative treatment, meaning like pelvic floor therapy, weight loss, if they need to do that. Um, a lot of people are shocked that that will help, but that actually, if they're, if they're heavy or obese, it makes a huge difference. So, um, I'd say trying to get everybody fit and toned is really most of the battle, but we can do a sling. It's a great procedure. It's a small, thin strip of mesh. It almost looks like a shoelace. I tell patients that goes behind underneath the urethra, just behind the pubic bone. 
And it's a wonderful tool that we have, but if we can avoid putting in a mesh in someone, I've done less and less in my career um, by just correcting prolapse and really going hard on the physical therapy. Um, and most people do really well unless they have a weak urethra. So as we're all sitting here talking, our urethra should be tight and closed while the bladder is relaxed and slowly filling. And then when we urinate, it opens up. So with age or um, trauma, sometimes like it's vaginal deliveries or multiple um, incontinence procedures by the urethra, you can affect those nerves and then wind up with what we call a drain pipe urethra, which is always a little bit open. And it's like having an open spigot. So that's why I think most people have tried to do less and less slings over time. And then really, if you really need to do that, you know, we can, but that that's just for stress incontinence. So you don't always need um, a sling for any kind all, any kind of prolapse? For prolapse, so the sling is more near the opening of the vagina. It's like within the first half inch to an inch, just underneath the urethra. For prolapse, yeah, that usually involves more of the upper vagina or the back wall where people get tears from vaginal deliveries. So um, you can do a what we call a native tissue repair um, where you're using the person's own tissue. Um, the traditional repair, if the uterus is coming down, then the bladder kind of gets pulled along with it. The bowel sort of follows suit. You know, I always say gravity's not our friend. So everything kind of drops together. Um, so the traditional repair is typically removing the uterus, and then you have to go higher up on those ligaments. So there's two ligaments that come off the back of the cervix and go to the spine. And you have to get higher up on those ligaments or use an alternative ligament in the pelvis called the sacrospinous ligament. But then you have to also fix the front wall by doing stitching and the back wall. Um, the only problem with that is that um, it's not durable, particularly for like high athletes. So unfortunately, and there was a nice study uh, done by the Pelvic Floor Disorder Network recently. That's a group, multi-center group, NIH funded, uh, where they had women with stage two prolapses when the prolapse comes to the opening of the vagina. And they randomized doing the suspension to the original ligaments on the uterus called the uterus sacral ligaments or the alternative one, the sacrospinous ligament. And then they actually did physical therapy or no physical therapy in each of those groups to those different suspensions. And it kind of matched what we always see in like short-term studies, but at two years, 30% came back with a bulge and at five years, 60% came back with a form, one form of bulge or another using the original ligament and 70% with that alternative ligament. Cause that one tips it a little bit further towards the rectum and creates a new bulge. So, um, so unfortunately we don't have great long-term outcomes. Now, not everybody has a recurrent, has needs surgery. So they may get a recurrent bulge. It's probably not as bad as it was. Um, but I'll be honest, <laughs> I, I, I moved from the East coast to Colorado. That's not acceptable for people out here because they're like you and your group. They are athletic people. They're very finely tunely aware of their bodies and they feel it and, and they're active and, and I don't blame them. Um, and, and I, 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 I don't think everybody needs to get a mesh, but I think for certainly for young people, athletic people, certainly anyone who's failed previous surgeries, um, we can use mesh. Um, so there's, there's people always say, who is it that mesh on TV? And I was going to say like, what is, can you address that? Because I, you know, I, I, you see that and I'm like, what's, what is there talking about? What's yes. Can you address like what people are seeing on TV and what the, what, whatever controversy has erupted? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, 
So back in, I'll start in like the eighties, roughly, um, people were using mesh on the vagina at the time of like abdominal hysterectomy, putting mesh on the top part of the vagina and attaching it to the spine. And that mimics the original ligaments. They go, they're called uterosacral ligaments. So that's a great repair because it pulls everything up to where it was supposed to be. And it's very durable because you're not relying on weak tissue. Now, back then in the eighties, up until the nineties, the meshes were very dense. They were very rough and scratchy and they were not porous and they were very, they just didn't stretch. They didn't give, they were not like elastic, like tissues. So they had, and they did a total hysterectomy where they would remove the cervix. Now you have a small hole at the top that you have to close on the vagina. Now it looks like a sock, right? Instead of having the cervix coming through. And they would get mesh erosions because the mesh was not getting incorporated into the tissue. It was just eroding through and it was too stiff and dense. Then in the 90s, they came out with polypropylene. And that was a big breakthrough. That, that's actually man-made material. It's, it's a porous weave. It does have some give to it. And, and people have come out with different variations of the same material. Just how lightweight are they going to make it like less, less mesh, more pores? But then there's a balance, right, where you don't want it too weak, but you don't want it too stiff. Um, and that works really well for suspending the top part of the vagina. And when we can use the cervix, so if somebody can keep their cervix, as long as they haven't had abnormal pap smears, where you just remove the uterine body, but keep the cervix and you anchor the mesh onto that, their risk of having a mesh problem is really low because you're not opening the vagina so that you don't have bacteria coming. Even though we prep, there's still bacteria. So there's no bacteria. It's sterile from above. You can do it robotically or open. Um, there's a thick piece of tissue that you can anchor that mesh to. And there is some mesh that goes along the vagina. But as I mentioned, the risk of having a mesh erosion is much lower because there's no incision. Um, so that's what we call a very anatomic um, procedure because that pulls everything up nice and high to where it was. And you're not relying on weak tissue. The, the thing where we got into trouble in the field, and this is why I'm so cautious with things like the laser and stuff is they said, the idea, I think the intent was good, but maybe the idea wasn't so great where they said, Hey, this newer mesh works. Well, it's not like the other one. Let's avoid doing abdominal surgery. Cause that we didn't have robotics then and go through the vagina with this durable mesh should be less invasive. But the problem is, is that it wasn't anatomic. So, and there's multiple things. So even though we prepped the vagina, just like our mouth, the genital, you know, vaginal area is full of bacteria. We do prep, but there's still bacteria there. So it's considered a contaminated case. So now you have bacteria, you have to make big incisions either on the front wall, the back wall of the vagina an incision and a foreign body. So they had a lot of erosions through the vagina because of that, it wouldn't heal well. And then the pharmaceutical company said, hey, just go deeper. You have to be deeper in the layers. But the problem is what's on the other side of the front wall of the vagina is the bladder. What's on the other side of the back wall is the rectum. And so then there was incidences of mesh going into bladder or rectum. And on top of that, you get, it's attached to the side walls, like ligaments up higher in the pelvis that the vagina is not attached to. And then they had these arms that came out through the obturator muscles, which are in the front of our pelvis by the groin, those muscles open our legs. So every time you open your legs, it's like pulling four drawstrings and putting tension on the mesh. So women were getting terrible pelvic pain and the muscles were like rock hard. And so they were getting erosions 
painful intercourse, you know, the partner could feel it when it would erode. And then when you take it out, you know, then there, you have to do extensive physical therapy to restore the muscles. And then a lot of times they have a recurrent, sometimes they'd be scarred and wouldn't get a recurrent prolapse, but we often have to go back and then repair the, the tissue again and decide, are we going to do a, the mesh from above? Are we going to use our own tissue and, and weigh those things? So, so that was actually pulled. There were several warnings. The first warning was because where they had to go to attach it, they were getting nerves. The pudendal nerve is in that area and the artery, and there were serious complications People weren't necessarily fellowship trained, like doing, you know, the specialty training. And, um, and I think that was a big thing, just not doing high volumes. And then, then they had a second warning because the erosions and the pelvic pain were then coming out. And then finally, thank God, they removed them altogether. So we still use the same mesh and the mesh itself is not bad. It's not perfect. And I tell patients that, I mean, what we're weighing against is what is their risk of recurrence? How devastating would that be to them for, you know, if there's a 85 year old lady who's just, you know, going for walks or is in a nursing home, I'm not going to put them through a big surgery, but somebody who tells me, you know, I say 75 is new 50. Now out here in Colorado, I have people say, well, I carry my kayak uphill and then we, you know, <laughs> or we hike with our skis and then we ski down, you know, they may not necessarily, you know, some of them opt for a, a native tissue repair and we hope for the best. And um, sometimes they are fine. Sometimes they need a, a pessary because they might have a recurrent bulge that's smaller, but still bothersome. But I'd say for super athletic people and younger people, that's probably not going to, you know, cut it, which right. blame them. So, so those are the factors that we take into account when we're choosing what surgery we do. And I will say um, here at the University of Colorado, we've, we've actually developed a multidisciplinary program with the colorectal surgeons that has been life-changing, I think for myself and, and for my patients, I, I, I worked with some at Yale and, um, I'd say over the years, people have really looked at how much does that, what we call the posterior compartment come down. So when people have a large back wall bulge, what we call a rectocele, that often means it's not just a defect in the lower part of the vagina, that connective tissue between the vagina and the rectum. What we're finding, what we've seen is that, and I've learned so much from the colorectal surgeons and they've learned a lot from us. A lot of times the upper part of the rectum is pushing down. So if I were just, just do a vaginal surgery, that's still going to push down, especially if they have constipation. And we do a lot of combined cases. I, the vast majority of our cases now are combined with them. So we do a, a heavy screening as I mentioned, the bowel and, and how that works. And, and we can do imaging called defecography where you can actually see what's going on during a bowel. It's not, it's not the funnest of tests, but they, they have it's you fascinating drink, though. <laughs> you drink a contrast. It lights up the small bowel. You actually fill the rectum with a barium paste and then they take a video and the people are, I always tell the patients that people are lovely and they are, but it gives us so much information because sometimes you see the whole rectum just dropping down like a piston in and out of itself. And when people say, I don't empty my rectum all the way, a lot of times it's that, and we need to pull that up at the same time. So, um, so it's, it's relative, I'd say it's relatively new working with colorectal surgeons, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, but I rely on them heavily. We rely on them heavily in our practice here. So as I mentioned, prolapse is really complex. And I, what I always tell patients, it's balancing. So if I just pull up the vagina and suspend the, the, the bladder rests on the vagina, 
those two compartments, the front and the middle compartment are really well supported. But if there's a problem in the back, I always say when we stand up, it's like water running down a mountain, the pressure is going to go to the area of least resistance. So if you don't have that balance between the three, people will wind up with a bulge. And so that's why we really do try to do a meticulous screening from bladder to bowel and the anatomy and, and sometimes need to order those imaging um, if the symptoms, sometimes people don't look like they have a lot of prolapse, but they, they feel a lot. And, and that's where that defecography comes in place. Cause sometimes you can even have small bowel coming down and slipping between the vagina and the rectum, even that's called an enteroseal. And we pick that up. So when people have a lot of bowel issues, or if the symptoms don't match the, the exam, um, we do those tests and I'll tell you, it's amazing because people, we have them stand up, we examine them standing up. It's like a hernia evaluation. We have them bearing down. We may see prolapse, but when they are bearing down during those defecographies, it's amazing how much they can push down the vagina, push down that bowel so much further than what they were doing in our office. So, um, so, so we use that test a lot to, as I mentioned, when things aren't quite matching. And I always tell patients, I believe you, right. And, and it's because we, we can we don't see the same force generated as when, you know, they have chronic constipation and are straining. It's, it's incredible. The amount of pressure. So th this leaves me wondering, is this something that women should be alert for some symptoms that they might brush off? You know, like you, you mentioned that a lot of people probably don't, may have them. They don't even know they have them. And I, you know, when you first said that, I'm like, oh, then I guess it's not a problem, but maybe it could be a problem. Maybe the, are there, are there things that maybe women would mistake for other things that could be a prolapse, I guess is the question I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good question because I think prevention is the key. Um, and so I think if people, the most common thing is if they see or feel a bulge in the vagina, they, they have a prolapse. And that, that actually is a study question. They've tested it. It's 80% sensitive. So if I were to ask somebody today and they say, yes, there's an 80% chance they have some form of a prolapse. Um, so 20% of the time, I guess sort of like in life, right? 80, 20 rule, 20% of the time they may not, and they just may feel it. Um, so I'd say if you have that, it's good to get screened and not that people need surgery, especially if it's not bothering them. But what I would recommend is to make sure the pelvic floor muscles are good because if the muscles are weak, they're gonna to drop to the floor that opens the vaginal opening more. And then you have more pressure on the pelvic organs to wanna to fall and to maybe consider using a pessary, especially if you're gonna do heavy lifting or like CrossFit, anything that's gonna cause a lot of Valsalva-like pressure. So a pessary is a, it's almost like a diaphragm. It's a silicone ring. Typically they come in different shapes and sizes, but the most common thing that we use looks like a ring, almost like a Frisbee until patients just got like a membrane in the middle. It folds in half. One of my patients calls it like a taco and then you put it in like a tampon and it opens up and it just sits there when it fits well, especially if the prolapse is more mild and people have good pelvic floor muscles, probably like this audience, they don't feel it. When people have problems with it is with more advanced prolapse, like coming out of the body and very weak more pelvic muscles or obesity with a lot of pressure. Um, but in general, when people have very mild prolapse, it's a great way of like bracing the tissue. So it, it won't have so much tension on it. And another one of my patients calls it the bra for the vagina, right? It just gives <laughs> some support. So I love that. Um, I have learned, I have learned a ton. I really appreciate all of your wisdom and your time today. Is there anything that you thought that this audience could benefit from that we haven't talked about? 
I think the key, I think it's great. I think this is an amazing group of women. So I'm really excited to be on this show. I encourage everybody to stay active and be active. And um, I know when I work a lot of hours, I always like watching podcasts like yours because uh, it, it's motivating. So I think staying active is the number one thing that we can do. And that also includes like sexual activity um, for keeping genital health and make, I would say, get screened for pelvic floor strength and really see, because sometimes people feel like they're doing the kegels well, and maybe they are, but just even, I think knowing if you're doing it well is really important. And like I said, Pilates and yoga can also be nice supplements to all the athletics that they're doing just to, as you mentioned, keep that core and the trunk really strong and balanced. They have those, I've seen those home devices that you can buy for pelvic floor chaining and, and Kegel, you know, all of that. Is there, is there any application for that that you think is useful? Yeah. I think if you feel that you can't contract the pelvic floor muscles, well, it's a great form of what we call biofeedback. So that means like you have a sense and you can see that, yes, I'm doing it right. Um, another thing besides the sensors are, um, they have vaginal cones. They look almost like acorns and they go in and if you can hold it then you know, you're, and there's different weights and you can graduate up, then, you know, you're squeezing the muscles. So, so they do play a, a, a nice role if, if you're not sure or having trouble sometimes just having something there. And that's why the physical therapists are great to start with. Cause it's a, a lot of times it's an older trauma from like typically delivery, right? That the pudendal nerve innervates all the muscles, the bladder, urethra, the anal sphincter. It can be stretched up to 20% of its length during vaginal delivery when the baby's head is crowning. So it is like a, a trauma. And unfortunately, we weren't doing a lot of pelvic floor therapy postpartum after babies, you know, years ago. Everybody should be going. And that's what I tell them all like, please go. So, it can be hard to feel or even activate those muscles. So that's why I think it's always good to at least be screened, maybe, you know, by your gynecologist or family practitioner, if they notice trouble. So a lot of times people don't need a whole lot of PT, but they can really guide. And I always encourage patients to talk to them about, you know, the gardening they do, the lifting they do, the sports that they do and how that affects, and they can give them a lot of great pointers. And then if they need these supplements, so, the, the biofeedback is great. And some people actually need electrical stim. And what electrical stim is, it's a probe that goes inside the vagina and you have a handheld unit and you can get those muscles to fire if they're not firing well. Cause some people say, I'm trying, I'm trying. And we feel a flicker or nothing. And it's not their fault, right? It's an, it's an old injury. And sometimes you kind of have to zing things. A little <laughs> so I call it the free kegels. Cause what they'll feel is the muscles contracting on their own. So it's a stim that just zings the nerve to get it to contract. Yeah. Like a complex that you use for your own, like you would put on an injury. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. It's skeletal muscle. The pelvic floor yeah. muscles are still just like anywhere else. Excellent. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. This has been really wonderful. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been great. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with personal training specialist and owner of Fit for Adventure, Karen Duff. We talk about training and racing at a high level while going through the menopause transition and life on the other side. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty.
You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.